0: Welcome back to Voices from Healthcare. Every other week, I seek to paint healthcare in vivid color as I learn more about the human side of medicine. In this episode of Voices from Healthcare.
1: So yes, it's definitely different when uh, you are the sole responsible one for what happens in the surgery. So even in fellowship, you know, technically you are an an orthopedic surgeon, you could practice on your own, but you're still under the tutelage of your fellowship director and your attending. So um, once you're on your own, I mean, it probably took me two years before I wasn't like nervous to some extent before going into a surgery. Um, And that kind of gets better month to month as you go on, but even that you have not done in a while, um, you just, and it's a heightened level of responsibility, right? So it's it's a nervousness that produces, just a more intense thought process and to make sure that you're doing the right thing. So part of it is, you know, as I started out doing hip or knee placement, those surgeries would take me 30 minutes longer than they do now, because I'm just much more comfortable with it now and my own skill level and my own efficiency. So, um, but it's, it's definitely a different feeling and it's definitely a big gut check <laughs> when, it, when it's all on you. Cause I mean, there's nobody to bail you, right? Right. Um, and there's nobody to, to help you. So it's, it's all on you, so.
0: Today we have a very special guest on the podcast. Dr. Davis is an orthopedic surgeon who completed his Doctor of Medicine degree from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. He went on to complete his orthopedic surgery residency at Mount Carmel Health System in Columbus, Ohio. He completed his Adult Reconstruction Fellowship at the Southern Joint Replacement Institute in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Davis specializes in orthopedic surgery and currently works at the Atrium Medical Center in Middletown. He has served as a mentor and friend. He is respected by his fellow peers and trusted by many. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Davis.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Glad to be here.
0: So I want to start off with home life and beginnings. Could you just describe for us your home growing up?
1: Sure. So I grew up here in Ohio, um, actually in Middletown. I had two older sisters, Uh, my mother was a nurse, Uh, my father worked through the uh, state patrol as a driver's license examiner, Um, grew up in a Christian home as well, so a very faith-based home, Um, and yeah,
0: it's kind of where I started. And so you talked about how your mother uh, was a nurse, did that inspire you or, or begin your love for the practice of medicine?
1: Sure. I mean, I remember going into her office as a, as a kid and seeing the family practice docs and um, kind of hanging out there as well. So I think that initially piqued my interest uh, in medicine.
0: And whose practice has inspired you within the world of orthopedics specifically? Was there a key mentor or someone who influenced that journey for you?
1: Um, I would say not initially. So I didn't really decide on orthopedics until I got uh, into probably halfway through medical school. Um, so uh, no
0: one specifically um, inspired that right off the bat. And how did you generally fall in love with the practice of medicine? Or like you knew that that was the direction you wanted to start pursuing? I would say that uh, probably started in high school.
1: I actually read uh, some books from a pediatric neurosurgeon, um, actually Dr. Ben Carson, uh, during high school and it kind of piqued my interest in surgery in general. Um, I thought I wanted to be a neurosurgeon and then realized that's probably not best for me. Um, but that, that was probably the initial kind of peak that started that. And then I really loved just the uh, pairing of the sciences uh, with um, the ability to kind of just help people on a very personal basis. So.
0: And what was your educational journey in that for your undergraduate years just as you started pursuing that? Did you have a pre-med concentration or how did you start going about. Sure. That.
1: Um, so my undergraduate at Ohio State was actually in uh, molecular genetics. Um, that was kind of my pre-med. There was no really pre-med degree per se at Ohio State. Um, so I got smart in genetics and probably forgot most of that by now. Um, but that was kind of the, the start of that and kind of the jump start into medical school at Cincinnati.
0: And we've talked before on the podcast but When you begin that field, you go general and then you have the opportunity in your later years to shadow and you're on your rotations and you get to know more of those specialties. During that time of shadowing and rotating through different departments, did you see orthopedics in that time and we're like this is this is a confirmation on what i want to do uh
1: yes so you know in general at least when i was going through you know the first two years were just a lot of your book learning you had some patient interaction but then years three and four was much more over your scheduled rotations and kind of the the biggest decision that uh, i was taught and kind of as you see going through is you have to decide whether you like the medical side of things or the surgical side of things and that's usually pretty obvious for people whether you like to be in the operating room or not um, so, but yes, I did have a rotation in orthopedics, uh, specifically, and then even when I decided to go into that field, I even did some away rotations at other medical schools, um, for a few months at a time to get basically additional experience in that, um, and also to kind of help with the next step of getting into a residency.
0: That's really important to just, to discuss that and just see how that rotation phase is actually really important in deciding ultimately where you end up, um, You've talked before of the unique privilege of entering medicine after the work of a long line of predecessors. So there's no pressure to initially invent that field of surgery. Um, you're stepping in after years of development, research, progression. Could you talk about how that impacts your day-to-day life within medicine?
1: Sure. I mean, as, you know, just from an education standpoint in medical school, I mean, sometimes medical schools will try different ways to learn and things like that. But ultimately it's a lot of just memorization starting out of all the research and science has gone on for many, many years prior to us getting there. Um, so that initial knowledge base is well established. Um, and then, you know, as you get into your training as well, I mean, you're learning from someone who has been taught <laughs> and they've learned from someone else. So it's a very, um, that knowledge is very much passed down. Um, and even when I went through residency and then into fellowship from a hip and knee replacement kind of subspecialty, you know, that knowledge base that you have is basically a, a culmination of um, everyone else that you've worked with and taught, and then you kind of bring that all into your practice in one. So as you go through, kind of uh, that knowledge is basically just passed down to you, and then you implement that into your practice as well.
0: That's really helpful to understand that you don't have that initial pressure to invent the field, and you have to take all of that knowledge before and just implement that in the day-to-day. Have you seen that in your own time within medicine, just even from when you first started to now, just progressions within the field?
1: Sure, I mean, a lot of my practice right now is specifically more on the hip and knee replacement side. Um, So even the research that's been done over the past 10 to 20 years has really made a lot of changes Um, and even the pain management around a surgery time period. Instead of staying in the hospital for a few days, people are going home the same day of surgery uh, from a joint replacement hip or knee standpoint. So, I mean, a lot of advances have been made in a relatively short period of time uh, that's been driven by just good research.
0: When I took anatomy and physiology for the first time in college, we talked about the bones and we talked about their landscape. And when people initially think of bones, they might think of them as brittle or they might think of them as as non-living and and not very active but that fundamental framework of the human body it's very active and it's constantly changing bones have their own distinctive landscape uh, if you will and you should take the time to feel the bones with its divots its smooth surfaces rough prominences could you talk a little bit about from an orthopedic surgeon perspective just that living landscape of bones a kind of how interesting it really is
1: <laughs> no I mean, that's a it's a great point um, you know kind of some of the jokes are oh, you're, you're just a bone surgeon it doesn't really matter it's not really life-saving procedures and all this stuff uh, but at the same time I always say you know if you didn't have bones you'd be kind of a blob on the floor <laughs> so I mean your bones are the, the main structure in your body that keeps you erect and upright um, and then obviously your muscle attachments kind of go into that and cause all the different undulations in the bone and so forth um, and really, just cause the body to function. So, from a general quality of life standpoint, um, from an activity standpoint, um, they're just kind of vital, obviously, to our day to day activity uh, and being able to um, live as a human.
0: And how exactly does that work with muscles to bones, with it attaching? Does it attach onto the divots and rough prominences, or does it actually innervate inside of the bone? So, I
1: mean, most attach directly onto the bone itself in different areas. Some of your muscles actually cross joints, and that's what causes different movement across the joints themselves. Um, but as you kind of go through your training and your anatomy and so forth, like you mentioned, you kind of see, um, you know, different grooves or raised areas in the bones are specific muscle attachment sites, and this, that's just how our bodies were made. So kind of every muscle, how it... Um, crosses a joint, or attaches to a bone, or attaches to a finger, or however it is, has a purpose uh, that causes a specific function of that limb.
0: And the layering is incredible, right? They're the layering of the bones, it's not just, or the layering of the muscles, that one overlaps the others, or especially in the forearm, there are so yes. many layers, superficial, intermediate, or deep layers, and it takes time, right, to know exactly those different placements, and how it's like a, a pulley and lever system almost between bones and muscles. Exactly. Is- I mean, it's a, it's a very
1: intricate interplay of the muscles and tendons and ligaments, especially in your hands and wrists, like you spoke about. Um, and as you kind of go through your anatomy classes, you'll see that as well. So, you know, even in myself, if I have, if I haven't done a specific surgery in a few months or a year and you kind of go back to it, I'll even pull out my anatomy book now just to refresh myself of exactly where that layer is compared to where the nerve is because you always want to know where the bad things are, right? You want to <laughs> know where the arteries are and you want to know where the nerves are exactly uh, in a certain plane uh, before you just start diving in there. So,
0: And what does that look like exactly when you research uh, in preparation for a surgery and you perform the surgery? How do you stay away from those, <laughs> those nerves and arteries? What are the techniques to, to avoid? Yeah, so I mean, it's
1: always, you start by learning in a book and you look at the pictures, right? Then you get to the cadaver. And then, oh, this is pretty easy because you're seeing a cadaver, but there's no blood in a cadaver, right? So (laughs) you get inside the human body and it's a whole other ballgame. So um, nothing looks exactly the same, but it's having the mental picture in your mind of what should be where and then dissecting it and finding where that is. So, um, you know, you always have to know where the vital structures are to stay away from those. Um, And once you know where the vital structures are, then you have more freedom as a surgeon to kind of know uh, what to do from that standpoint. If you just go in there without that knowledge, um, then your efficiency and also your own nervousness uh, is uh, quite heightened. So you you have to know. So that that anatomy you're learning uh, in medical school or even before that really um, sticks with you and you have to know that moving forward.
0: Now when we are first learning about the muscles and the bones and nerves, innervation, vasculature, we see these nice beautiful diagrams with all of these different colors and and we see it nicely labeled and everything, but then obviously during surgery it is not at all like that. Is a main way to tell the difference based on structure between say nerves and arteries or veins or how does that exactly work?
1: Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. So uh, thank God for people like Netter who did his Netter anatomy and all those things in such detail, which give us, you know, and that's, you know, how our bodies are made is a very reproducible thing, right? So very rarely do you have the uh, anatomic variance that it's different. And that's kind of the things you learn as well as you go through. But, you know, the um, knowledge of like localizing what is what and you know, what is a nerve compared to an artery compared to a vein that all comes with experience. Uh, because, when you do a surgery and you get in there and there's some blood overlying things and things are bleeding a little bit you kind of have to know what is what and there are different things from a texture standpoint from a visualization standpoint that you'll learn and even from a color standpoint that
0: you'll learn that helps you um, know uh, what you're looking at. That's fascinating to have that preparation though before so that when you're actually in the surgery you know what's what and you're prepared for that you talked about anatomical variance how significant is that in preparation for surgery i know everyone has slight anatomical difference but sure. when you're preparing for a surgery or you're looking at a patient and preparing for that how much does that play into the prep
1: uh, it's more just knowing those variants when you go into a surgery so uh, i do a lot of hip replacement so your sciatic nerve kind of runs along the posterior aspect uh, of your hip joint so there are certain variants in uh, whether it goes over top or underneath your piriformis muscle. Uh, so normally, you know, you retract your piriformis muscle, you know it's safe. But you should always have a heightened sense of knowing where that sciatic nerve is to protect that during the surgery, so you don't have an injury to that afterward. Um, same thing from like a carpal tunnel release in your hand. So there are certain um, variants on where your superficial nerves come out, so you have to know what those variants are so you don't accidentally hit that nerve and cut that nerve.
0: Wow. And so we talked about that living landscape of bones and how it's very active. There's the fascinating aspect of relocation of bone density with um, a weaker area of the body um, it, where it's weakest structurally. The bone density will kind of change based on where mm-hmm. that body is weaker structurally. Could you talk a little bit about just that idea? Sure. I mean, so our, our bones are made
1: to remodel, so basically break themselves down and rebuild. And that's actually stimulated by walking and being active. So, we see this in people who are very sedentary. Um, and if you even look at an x ray of their bone, you can tell that their bone quality is thinner um, or just not as good of a quality as someone who is more young and active. Uh, It's just kind of one of the amazing ways that our bodies are built and our bone is made to remodel. So same concept with fracture healing. So when you break a bone, your body's made to throw down new bone then remodel that into a uh, normal looking bone over the course of a couple months to a year.
0: Fascinating. I know some schools offer a cadaver experience for students where they're able to take a cadaver class and they're able to Get very, very good experience in their undergraduate years for hands on experience and starting to learn muscles and innervation, vasculature, and so on. How might prospective students who are still in their undergraduate years get other hands on experience?
1: Um, so, I'd say first off, if, they, if you have that opportunity in undergraduate, uh, I think that's a great opportunity uh, if you know you may be going into medicine to kind of give you a jump start in that. Um, so, I think that would be a great thing to do. Um, I think from other opportunities to see that um, outside of a schooling situation, um, there's shadowing opportunities. You can shadow surgeons and things like that to kind of get uh, some understanding of that as well. Do you have any other
0: ideas on that yourself? I I have found (laughs) shadowing to be extremely valuable, and you you get that experience, and it's a relatively easy process, some paperwork involved, but to... (laughs) to just be able to see that is a great perspective Mm -hmm. Um, and I think maybe students don't take enough advantage of shattering experience but that would be the first thing that would come to my mind is that opportunity to see the surgeon at work and to be able to to see what a day-to-day looks like and you almost have that ability to just see firsthand without any of that initial responsibility yet Exactly, Um, so you can kind of take a step back but you still have a lot to be able to to see and observe and take in and you can see then when you're shadowing kind of what sparks joy and what sparks a love kind of when you're in that area
1: yes um, no those anatomy labs have a a lot of learning and a lot of uh, fun and just amazement as you look at the human body and how it was created so
0: absolutely fascinating i want to touch on the idea of collaboration there's a lot of collaboration within the medical field between all different types of professions between doctors and nurses and anesthesiologists and there's that importance of realizing that there's a competent team behind you and that leads to great efficiency within the workplace. Could you talk about how you've tried to implement this in your own practice? Just that idea of realizing that team behind you and and how that has led to efficiency.
1: Yeah, so kind of the term we use, kind of the multidisciplinary approach to medicine or kind of any kind of So. Um, you know, and just to use the example of hip or knee replacement. I mean, your primary care physician is important just from a medical side of things uh, to get the patient prepared for surgery. You know, in the office, um, your athletic trainers or your medical assistants or nurses uh, play a vital role in kind of getting that patient ready for surgery and kind of helping you out with your own efficiency in the office. And then on the the day of surgery, um, you know, there's a lot of interplay with that. There's the nurses and that uh, see the patient beforehand, there's the anesthesia team, there's the nurse and the scrub techs and the assistants who help you in the operating room. So your efficiency as a surgeon is based on your own skill and your own comfortability um, and your own um, speed in surgery, Uh, but it's also based on um, how well you work with your own staff. So if you have a skilled scrub, um, a scrub technician and your skilled assistants who know what you do and know your steps, Ah, uh, your case can go very smoothly. Um, if there are people who are unfamiliar with what you do or you have not worked with before, it can add an easy ten to fifteen minutes to your surgery um, just because of the inefficiencies that come with that. So, um, part of establishing that team is just working with the same people over and over again, so they can learn you and you can learn them, and kind of, um,
0: kind of they can we can you can help each other along uh, to get the best outcome for the patient. And I know. 10 to 15 minutes might not seem major, but if that's multiple surgeries, it's that cascading effect of over time. It just keeps adding up to the day. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, um, if you
1: have six surgeries in a day and every case is 10 minutes longer, you've got an hour working there. So
0: Exactly. And that's amazing to see that you also have to realize that certain people, if they are skilled, you give that certain task up to them, and then you can be more efficient as a surgeon with delegating some of those tasks, and then mm-hmm. everyone works together as that team. Within... The world of surgery, there's a lot of subspecialties, and you specialize in that hip and knee replacement, and you have that training in the direct anterior approach as well as the posterior. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how to pursue a subspecialty, maybe after you've completed your general training, and then as you decide you want to pursue a specialty, kind of what that looks like?
1: Sure. So, you know, as you go along in training from medical school to residency, So certain residencies have uh, additional years of training you can do. So um, such as, you know, family medicine, you can do a sports medicine fellowship for a year. Uh, Within general surgery, you can do plastic surgery or cardiothoracic surgery. Um, So the landscape of those are kind of all changing nowadays with uh, different residency paths. Um, But from an orthopedic standpoint, you know, once you get into orthopedics, you do your five years of orthopedic residency. Um, and after that, you're kind of trained in a, um, a very broad range of surgeries. Um, and then an additional year, of, it's called a fellowship you can do, which basically is an additional subspecialty. So for myself, I really liked hip and knee replacement. I liked how the patients did well afterward. They were their quality of life. And it was a, uh, very rewarding as a surgeon to see your patients do well. Um, so now in practice, I do the majority of hip and knee replacement, but I still do some of the general orthopedics, meaning... Uh, the fracture care, ankle fractures, hip fractures, things like that that would come through the emergency room. So um, you can choose to kind of do whatever path you would like to do, whether that's more of a general side of things or a more subspecialty side.
0: And within hip replacement with anterior and posterior approach, is there one that gives a much quicker recovery time to patients? Sure. Uh,
1: that's a great question. I get that a lot from our patients. So there's as always, there's a lot of marketing around a lot of these things. Um, the direct anterior approach had a lot of marketing recently. It's not anything new. It's been around for a while. Um, but you know, in general, it's more just the, the difference in where your dissection is and where your muscle planes you're going through to get down to the hip joint. Um, and there's differences in your recovery and what we call hip precautions afterward, meaning specific positions we don't want your hip in until the body kind of naturally forms scar tissue around that hip. So In general, what I tell people from a direct anterior approach, kind of on the front of your thigh, um, your recovery is about two weeks quicker because you don't have to go through your big uh, gluteus maximus muscle. Um, And typically they're a little less sore, Uh, but by about six weeks out after surgery, regardless of the approach that you do, um, the results are the same. Hmm. So long-term results are the same, short-term results a little better with the direct anterior.
0: Got it. And we've talked about it before, but you've really, fought hard to have that streamlined as much as possible for having same-day surgery for patients or not once they have a surgery not having them be in the hospital for a while afterwards could you talk about like why that is so important to have more same-day surgeries when possible for patients? sure I mean
1: just in general as I talk to patients I it gets them back home basically to their own environment (laughs) their own bed their own food their own family support right so even when I started at my current hospital five years ago, you know people were still staying in the hospital at least a couple nights after a joint replacement. Uh, there's been a lot of good literature over the past probably 10 or 15 years looking at kind of the safety profiles of people going home compared to staying in the hospital, and it's shown no difference. So the, the kind of big push over the past few years, especially to get patients home the same day, uh, so typically you'll have a surgery Uh, Once all your anesthesia wears off, you'll get up with a physical therapist, and you'll walk around using your walker. As long as you're doing okay, we'll get you back home. So, I mean, I would say that probably 95% of my patients now are able to go home the same day of surgery after an elective joint replacement. So, um, and people have been happy with that. Um, So, it's been, yeah, it's been very positive.
0: And then do they come back after a certain amount of time to check in and touch base with you to see how their recovery is going?
1: Yes. So I see them at two weeks after surgery and then at six weeks after surgery. Um, And as long as they're doing okay then, typically we just talk about kind of getting back to life and activity. Uh, And then I'll routinely see them at kind of their one-year follow-up just to check in on them once again.
0: Got it. And you have seen that difference between uh, first coming, how... Patients would stay maybe a couple days and then having them be more that same day surgery.
1: Yes, I mean, um, and the biggest way we've been able to do that more is just from a nerve block standpoint and a pain control standpoint after the surgery. So it kind of starts before the surgery, during the surgery with the anesthesia group, and then also with some of the injectable blocks that I use around the hip or knee joint. Um, and it really allows them to get up and move and the, your your pain is actually better in the first kind of 24 to 36 hours after the surgery than it is even the couple of days following that. So it really allows you to get back
0: home. Mm-hmm. It's really important to have them be in their home environment, in their natural environment as soon as possible mm-hmm. and how that can aid recovery. I wanna to touch on bedside manner a little bit. I know it's really, really important to stimulate that physician-patient relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to put them in a good frame of mind for surgery, and then also before surgery, just to have that trust in you as a surgeon. Yes. Could you talk about how you've tried to implement that in your practice, that bedside manner?
1: Sure, so I mean, just on a uh, more humorous note, I mean, in general, my patient population is kind of over the age of 55 to 60. So I get the comments all the time of, man, you look young when I walk in the room. (laughs) Um, so, yeah, establishing that rapport is important and, you know, how I was kind of taught in medical school is you, you sit down in kind of relaxed position and you just kind of look at them in the eye and you just ask them what brings them in today and you kind of let them talk um, instead of just pounding them with questions. Um, and a lot of your history and so forth, as you'll learn, you'll get just with allowing them to talk and so forth. Um, you know, nowadays we're tempted to get on the computer and just start typing away um with your back to the patient and it really is just not good to build a relationship with people everybody likes to um, see the patient see the person face to face and you know from a patient standpoint you know the patient has to trust you as the surgeon um, that you're going to take care of them and you have your their best interest in mind Um, so i never want to do a surgery on someone who does not trust me or trust that i will do uh, my absolute best for them Um, so uh, there's a lot of things that go into that, but just having a face-to-face conversation with them, allowing them to ask questions, and not feeling rushed. Nobody wants to have a surgeon that runs in the room and then runs right back out of the room, and they don't know them. Time is always of the essence, and you can't spend an hour with every patient, but it definitely on a patient I'm signing up for surgery, I'll typically spend 15 to 20 minutes just to make sure I answer their questions, and then they know um, what's going to be coming forward. So.
0: And how do you ensure that they're in a good frame of mind right before the surgery? I know sometimes the lead anesthesiologist comes to get them and brings them back to the OR, but is there anything that you have realized that's been effective like right before a surgery when they might start to, to panic or, or be like, wow, I'm actually going into surgery now? Is there? Yeah.
1: I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. There's always, uh, you're always kind of surprised at who handles things well <laughs> and who does not handle things well. Um, So, you know, in general, you know, when I go in them, I see all my patients prior to a surgery. um, And I just ask if they have any questions, you can kind of get a good sense of how they're feeling then. And then their family members, they're with them too. Um, And the other thing I've started to do over the past few years is just offer to pray with patients before a surgery. Um, So I just leave it very generic and entirely leave it up to them. But if they're okay with that, uh, then I will offer to pray for them and just for the team and just for the success of the surgery. Uh, And I found it uh, in general, it's been a very positive response. um, And people have, uh, it actually helps to calm most people down just to know that um, your surgeon, whether you have that same faith as your surgeon or not, but just to know that um, he has a faith as well um, going into that surgery and will, it kind of builds that relationship like you talked about uh, so they can trust you.
0: Hmm. I want to take a look into the surgery room. Everyone has a first day. And there's that stage when you're in medical school and then you have that constant mentorship and, and you're side by side and you're constantly learning. But there's that distinctive moment when you're doing your first surgery and you do not have that mentor standing right next to you. It's your first surgery um, alone as, as the lead surgeon. Could you take us into like, your first surgery without your mentor, like right there? Like sure. when you're so I'll take you to the, all the way back to a first funny moment of being in the OR first. And yeah, then we'll jump sure. to
1: that, So you know, as a med student, you're taught all the sterile technique, how to scrub and all this stuff. And it's really about, it becomes second nature to you, right? But, you know, you, you can't go to the floor for something. You can't touch things. You can't do all these things that you're, like, thinking about as a med student. And I was in one of my first surgeries, and something dropped on the floor. And I was thinking, I'm going to be a helper. Let me go pick that up. So, I like, I'm scrubbed in. And I literally try to go reach down to the floor to grab something. And the scrub, the scrub is like, get out of here. <laughs> like, you got to walk away. I was like, what? And then you realize, oh, wow, I really can't do that. So yeah. you know you're entire you're not sterile anymore. You got to scrub out. So just an embarrassing moment, but you know it stuck with you. Um, so so fast forward that. Um, so yes, it's definitely different when uh, you are the sole responsible one for what happens in the surgery. So even in fellowship, you know technically you are an you are an orthopedic surgeon. You could practice on your own, but you're still under the tutelage of your fellowship director and your attending. So um, once you're on your own, I mean it probably took me two years before I wasn't like nervous to some extent before going into a surgery. Um, And that kind of gets better month to month as you go on, but even surgeries that you have not done in a while, um, you just, and it's a heightened level of responsibility, right? So it's it's a nervousness that produces um, just a more intense thought process and to make sure that you're doing the right thing. So part of it is, you know, as I started out doing hip or knee replacement, those surgeries would take me 30 minutes longer than they do now because I'm just much more comfortable with it now and my own skill level and my own efficiency. So, um, But it's, it's definitely a different feeling and it's definitely a big gut check <laughs> when, it, when it's all on you because I mean, there's nobody to bail you, right? Right. Um, and there's nobody to, to help you, so it's, it's all on you, so. Hmm.
0: But it is really important to have all of those formative years beforehand with that mentorship and then you do feel ready yeah, even if you are yeah. nervous or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, I, I felt that I had I
1: had great training coming into th- um, from residency and from fellowship, so I felt fully confident in my my own skill going into that. But it's still that extra measure of oh wow, it's all on me now. So, right. um, it, it's good. <laughs> it's good, and it, it it keeps your mind in the right spot that uh, it's important and it's vital of what you're doing.
0: Mm. Orthopedics is far more surgically physical or fast paced than anyone might think. It's very fast paced, it's very engaging. I know in our conversations, you've referred to it before as human carpentry. You, you literally have your surgical drills and you're, you're fixing uh, what may be a fracture or you're replacing a knee or, or something like that. Do you have any favorite surgical instruments or anything that you, you have enjoyed working with? Yeah. I mean, uh,
1: in general, patients don't like to hear that. But, yes, it is like human carpentry, essentially. Uh, some people who are actually carpenters actually kind of latch on to that and say, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. So, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to patients, they'll talk about, you know, oh, the rod you put up, my, my femur, or the, the, the shank you put there. And so, I mean, they'll use different terms that kind of, just in their mind, kind of uh, relate to what you're doing. Um, but, you know, I, I, t- I tend to like the, the bigger the better. So, you know, some of the, some of the drill bits that I'm using – on some of my hip or knee revisions i mean they can be up to uh... two centimeter in diameter drill bits that you're using uh... so and some of the implants are the same size i mean you have um, quite big metal objects that you're putting into the patient's bodies uh... so i I find that very fascinating and very enjoyable
0: And it's fascinating to see when you look at an orthopedic surgery and you see that surgical field and you see all of those tools listed out there's like there's so many and there's even that that type of blender to them to mix that type of cement that you use yes. uh, uh, to put those placements on for reconstructions and replacements yeah. and it's, it's absolutely fascinating yeah. I, I kind of so and typically on a knee
1: replacement I'm cementing those knee replacements so as I describe it to the patient, I kind of describe it as grout you know ah oh, I use you know I put grout in my in my bathroom or you know something else like that so they, they, they kind of get an idea of I'm cementing this onto your bone um, so that's Part of the patient relationship right so i mean you're kind of using terms that they would understand more than just the medical terminology that you uh, use on a day-to-day basis
0: and how long does it typically take for that cement to to catch and to harden
1: so most of the cement it's 12 to 14 minutes but um, by the time you start mixing it so it's a powder plus a liquid then you mix that together and you've got about a 12 to 14 minute window before that hardens And then, you know, it fully solidifies within, like, the first day, but right after that hardens, it basically heats up, um, and you're good to go. So the patient can get up and walk on it right away. Wow.
0: How do you constantly stay up to date with new treatments or procedures within the world of orthopedics? As it's constantly changing and new developments are always being made, how do you stay up to date?
1: So, I mean, a lot of it is... um, uh, subscriptions to journals, so uh, the Journal of Arthroplasty is one that I kind of keep regularly and kind of keep up on. Um, you get stuff through your CMEs you're required to do uh, but then there's also um, conferences that they have uh, multiple times a year um, and really you know things change quite a bit realistically it takes about four to five years to really be different maybe so as long as you're going to conferences every few years to kind of keep things refreshed you'll kind of get an idea of what's new.
0: Now, within the surgical team for an orthopedics, usually you have a designated X-ray um, person that will come in mm-hmm. and, and will X-ray what's been put into the patient uh, during a surgery. What are you looking for in terms of alignment with those, with those rods, or what are you trying to see in those X-ray sure. images? So, um A broken
1: bone obviously has, we call it displacement, when the bones kind of pull apart. So in surgery, when you're looking at it, and we call it reducing that bone, so you reduce it back to its anatomic spot. So you use um, clamps or different tools to do that, and then you take an x-ray picture, so it's called fluoroscopy, interoperative fluoroscopy, so in the operating room x-ray, to basically look and confirm that what you think with your eyeball is actually correct on, um, realistically would be on an x-ray. And then once you have that, then the fluoroscopy also helps you to guide the placement of the implants, whether it's a plate or screws, or whether it's a rod, um, like an intramedullary, so inside the femur rod. Um, and then the other thing, it also allows you to do much more minimally invasive procedures. So a lot of times when we fix a femur, so um, if a patient comes in with a hip fracture and we have to fix that, we can do it through um, you know, a couple centimeter incisions versus opening up the entire femur. We no longer have to do that. That really allows for more minimally invasive surgery to fix fractures.
0: There's also that fascinating aspect within orthopedics of sometimes using tendon to fix torn muscles. There's a technique, right, to use tendon to kind of repair that. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So I guess the most obvious one probably people have heard of is like the, like an ACL reconstruction. So I mean, a lot of those are done. You can do um, bone patellar bone, or you can do um, allograft, meaning another tissue from somebody else, or you can use like a hamstring tendon. So a lot of times the push nowadays is to do kind of hamstring tendon ACL reconstructions. Uh, so yes, there are certain situations where you use kind of your own tendon or or a uh, cadaver type
0: tendon, an allograft
1: to reconstruct things.
0: Hmm. And there's certain trauma cases as well if a there's the idea of being on call and and you've talked before about it's nice that sometimes in orthopedics uh, you don't have to come um, in when you're on on call necessarily all the time Uh, but sometimes there are trauma cases or some urgent matters that need to be attended to have you been involved in a trauma case or or something like that
1: sure you you see a lot of that during your training and then depending on the hospital that you work at uh, in practice so you know emergency things that need um, within a couple hours care in orthopedics are typically open fractures so um, bad fractures or we call comminuted fractures kind of in multiple pieces that tend to go out through the skin so anytime you have a bone that sticks out of the skin it's not a positive thing um, so you treat that with antibiotics and then a surgical debridement or kind of cleaning out that area and then fixing the bone at the same time so those are things that typically we try to get to within a couple hours or at least within the first 24 hours depending on the uh, type of break
0: as well as the type of the open wound. You've touched on it before, but could you talk to us about the rehab process and what that looks like after surgery? Are you working with PT or rehab specialists to develop treatment plans for patients?
1: Yes, so it all kind of depends on Uh, what the injury is, what the surgery is um, on a replacement or a joint replacement side. Uh, The physical therapists play a vital role in that because you're allowed to walk on it right away. You work on the motion of that joint, of that new replacement, um, and the physical therapists really help to get their muscle strength back quicker and also kind of reduce some of the swelling that can occur after surgery. Um, certain injuries like certain fractures or breaks in the bone that are fixed require you to basically not put any weight on that extremity for a period of time Um, so it kind of is your physical therapy and your rehab is tailored to kind of what surgery you've had.
0: How have you seen orthopedic surgery advance and progressions and ways that surgery has been done or have you seen any type of advancement in your time?
1: Sure. Um, you know, from a hip and knee replacement standpoint, uh, different implants have come out, different advances within that, and also kind of around the pain control around the surgery time, like I touched on before. Um, you know, from an ankle fracture standpoint, um, one of the injuries you can have is called a syndesmotic injury, meaning you tear the ligand be- between your tibia and your fibula, or as the common term we see with athletes is a high ankle sprain um so there's been advances even in how we fix those so we used to have to fix them with screws and you then had to take out after a couple months uh there's been new technology with what we call it's like a tightrope or like a heavy suture that can be used that can actually stay in and you don't have to go undergo another surgery to take it out so there's been different advances um both on kind of a joint replacement standpoint and from a fracture and really a sports medicine standpoint so yeah there's always something new technology coming out you've got to kind of figure out and siphon through what's, what's important and, and what matters. But yeah, there's been a lot of stuff, uh, even in my kind of brief time of training and practice.
0: And what within the world of orthopedics excites you in the next couple of years? As you think forward, what is exciting to you within that field? So, I mean, I think a lot of the um, up-and-coming things
1: you hear about, you hear about, you know, stem cell technology and things like that from a kind of biologic standpoint, Um, If somebody ever figures out how to get that stem cell to attach to a bone and grow cartilage, then I'll be out of a job as a joint replacement surgeon. So, um, but you know, from a patient's standpoint, that would be great technology going forward. Um, I think things that excite me more just because I'm a joint replacement surgeon are just advances in that and how to basically improve patient's quality of life from the implant design, how long the implants last and so forth. You know, it used to be when you had a knee or hip replacement, they may only last you five or 10 years because certain parts would wear out really quickly Um, the way they process those implants nowadays um, typically you're hoping for 20 to 30 years uh, for a joint implant to last you so i mean even that reduces the amount of surgeries each individual patient has to go through uh, which is always what you want as your as the surgeon of your patients so
0: let's say you're you're walking in the hospital and you see maybe an uh, undergraduate student who's shadowing, maybe isn't in the medical field, but is just starting to discover what's within medicine. You, like, you get in the elevator together and you're going up a couple floors. You don't have a lot of time. You kind of have to just describe to them if they ask, what do you do? Like what, I- what is at the core of what you do? What would you, you say in like a succinct way of like, this is who I am and this is, this is what
1: I do? So I'd say you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, my job is to uh, res- help restore function and gain patients quality of life back I think it's pretty much as simple as that I mean that can typically you're seeing people who are in a need where they um, have a a dysfunction in their body uh, from a bone or joint standpoint that causes them pain that causes them um, an inability to be active and kind of my job as a orthopedic surgeon is to regain that function and to get them back
0: to anything they want to do could you talk about recognizing genuine friendships within the medical field between doctors and, and with those people that you grew up uh, together and then had that education together. Could you talk about that value of maintaining those types of friendships within the medical field?
1: Sure, and I, I think we kind of see that in any kind of job situation you're in, but I think specifically being a physician, um, having friendships of people who are also physicians is important because you kind of understand you know what you went through in training and kind of where you are now because um, it's like any other training but specifically in medicine it's a very rigorous training um, from a uh, mental stress standpoint to a lack of sleep standpoint uh, just a lot of different aspects so it helps to have those friendships of people who um, understand kind of what you've been through and you understand what they've been through as well so when issues arise or they're struggling with something you can kind of really help them through that so i know for me i had a couple uh, really good friends um in medical school uh, that, you know, we shared our experiences going through training, but also we um, shared our Christian faith. And so it really was able to kind of uh, spur each other along during the difficult times to kind of get through that. So, um, and those friendships have um, kept going forward Um, and we still talk today. So.
0: It's so important to recognize that those friendships have so much value. And like you're saying, you need someone to, to share that mental stress Mm -hmm. with and in those difficult aspects of medicine in your training and to be able to talk to them and to collaborate, you know, even when you have pursued the education and you've achieved that, that role, you can still collaborate and, and talk yeah. to
1: them too, so. and it's a, you know, not, you know, it's a, the career that you do and, you know, doing surgery, not many people are willing to hear the details about what went on in the surgery. It kind of grosses them out, right? So, <laughs> you know, the I go home and tell my wife and my kids something, and, you know, it's, I, I tailor that differently than if I was talking to one of my friends who's also a surgeon, because you can go into much more detail and say, ah, oh, that was really cool, and they can kind of understand what you're talking about. Um, so, yeah, it really helps to have that uh, friendship.
0: What about advice for the prospective student, um, just generally someone who is Interested in pursuing healthcare? Do you have any advice that you would give them now in their undergraduate years and, and even further along the journey?
1: Sure. I mean, I think the as you go into undergrad and kind of as you advance forward, I mean, um, every year you go through tr- um, your education and training should kind of confirm what you want to do. Um, you know, being a physician of um, of any subspecialty, it's 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 a long haul. So you know, my my post high school education was 14 years before I had my first big boy job. Okay, so it's not like you go for a year or two and then you're out doing stuff. So you really have to have the mentality of, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul, and there will definitely be uh, ups and downs to that. Um, but the, the more you go along, the more confirmation in your mind that you really enjoy what you're doing, you really have to enjoy what you're doing. Um, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, uh, or at least enjoy what you see as the end result of what you're doing, um, you should probably be switching what you're thinking. Um, so Because the enjoyment of what you do and taking care of patients um, really gets you through the times where it's a struggle.
0: And there really is that sacrifice of love in those, those years of education and, and in it for the long haul and, and pursuing that and having that distant goal in mind. Could you talk about how, when you might have had difficult aspects um, in education, but just that idea of holding on to like I know what I want to pursue eventually and that helps me kind of propels me through that.
1: Yeah I, I think that um, medical school had its own challenges right it's a lot of it's a lot of book learning it's a lot of rote memorization and it's then an applying starting to apply that into your um, taking all that head knowledge and then putting it to patient care right and that continues kind of as you go into um, residency I mean I think from a Sacrifice of love standpoint, it's you know, if you have a family if you have kids. I mean the sacrifice is not just yours It's your family and your children also seeing that as well and going along with you on that journey So you know, I was married quite young um, So my wife has been we've been together through Undergraduate through medical school through residency. So she's seen all the good and the bad along the way and it's really supported me in that Um, But you know just from a, a workload standpoint, I mean we had three children during my residency and I don't Remember a lot of their young years you do remember kind of snippets here and there But like for the most part I was not around that much because you were working a lot of that time Um, So that's a I knew that was a a temporary stopping point and that wasn't my whole career So that kind of allowed me to kind of push through that time But you really have to maintain those relationships with your own family and your spouse if you have one uh, Just to kind of give you support through those times.
0: And It's not just your goal of pursuing an an end goal, but if you do have that family, you have to, you know, think about that, and just managing all of that can be challenging at times.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. them, they also know that it's, this is a temporary time period, and it's for a, a better end goal, better meaning um, a little more control of your own lifestyle, um, and how you can kind of prioritize your family
0: and your work, and so forth. What about when you first came into practice after finishing med school? Was there a big difference for you between that textbook knowledge and then, wow, I'm actually taking care of patients now. Was there, was there a divide there? or?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that's what, you know, we kind of taught that in medical school too, like, and you'll see kind of new interns coming on the floor for the first time. There's a bunch of jokes about that. But I mean, it's really, as a physician who's gone through that, you realize that you have all this knowledge in your head from a book knowledge and examples you've seen on tests. And then when you see it in a real person, you have to basically take all that together and summarize it and then implement it into kind of the patient care. So yes, that is definitely a challenge um, to do, but that's also why you have people who are a couple of years ahead of you then kind of guide you through that and kind of help you think through that. So it kind of goes back to the thing we talked about at the beginning of just, you're kind of building on the experience of those who have gone before you um, so that when you get a year or two ahead, then you can help the person who's coming up behind you as well. So it's a very collaborative effort.
0: And what about just practical advice for the aspiring medical student? I know that orthopedics, there's a lot of memorization involved with muscles and bones and nerves, vasculature. Do you have any techniques or things that you found valuable in your educational journey of just this was effective for me? Um, I think that's
1: really individualized. So uh, you kind of have to learn on your own, kind of going through undergrad and medical school, how you study the best. Um, whether that's someone who does lectures better, if you can learn from that. Whether it's someone who you have to study on your own for, you know, for instance, pharmacology in medical school. I had stacks and stacks of flashcards of just drugs and all this different, and it's just you know you just go through them. And I still I kept those for a while. I mean, it's you know a foot or two worth of flashcards just for pharmacology. So um, you'll kind of learn depending on the topic that you're learning, kind of how you uh, best
0: learn through that. It's really helpful, though, to get that advice and never underestimate the power of the flashcards. <laughs> no, <laughs> still it's still yeah. It still yeah. works. It still What about any, any closing thoughts for people interested in orthopedics and just people generally just starting out on that journey? Any, any closing thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think that uh, medicine in general is a very evolving field. Uh, I think it's a, um, it's a very rewarding field. So you're getting and you're taking care of people at a very at a time of need for them um, so from a uh, physical standpoint you're helping them out as a doctor but it's also a time where you can talk with them and kind of just get an idea of kind of where their mind is and what their thoughts are and their beliefs are and you can really get them at a time where um, you can be very influential and just a good way to get them on a more healthier path going forward um, I think people who are starting out in training, you got to be ready for the long haul. So I, mean, I think I'll talk with you about that. And yeah. I kind of just really try to gauge people I'm talking to, like, how serious are you about this? So if it's like, eh, I could be a doctor or eh, I could be something else. If you're kind of wavering back and forth, then you probably should go to the other route because um, you may not kind of make it through all the push of the training. So you've got a really desire to do it and have the desire to do it for the right reasons. Um, you've got to work hard, and as I kind of told people in residency who are a few years behind me, you kind of, you work hard, you put your head down, and you keep pushing forward. Uh, because sometimes that's kind of all you can do, um, but the end result is, is great, um, and I've, I thoroughly enjoy what I do, uh, and I really can't see myself doing anything else. Um, and I think that's, um, not many careers have that, or I should say, some people have to go to a job, where they really just have to go to a job to make money. Um, I also go to a job to make money, but I also really thoroughly enjoy what I do, and that's definitely a blessing. And
0: there is that stage of full commitment to that process. And if you are wavering, you should really honestly evaluate think it and evaluate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And
1: it's and it's okay to waver back and forth a bit, but once you dive in, you, you got to dive in. Go in fully. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and just talking through. world of orthopedics with us and and giving us a window into your life and your role as a surgeon yeah thank you jonathan of course thank you for tuning into this episode of voices from healthcare this podcast seeks to give practical advice to aspiring healthcare professionals and encourage those within the healthcare field if you appreciate the message and mission of this podcast leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to and make sure to follow the podcast so that you do not miss out on future episodes. It really does help spread the word within the podcasting world. Tune in on October 25th as I gain unique insight to the world of medical surgical nursing. We will touch on the transition from college to the professional workplace and the value of a preceptor program. We will delve into the day to day of hospital life the relationship between nurses and residents and the organization of the med search floor. We will consider the world of IVs, crucial issues within the world of nursing, and the difference between medical dramas and hospital realities. I will hear how she was involved in a hospital code and her hopes for the future as she continues to grow within this space. Feel free to send me professions you want me to interview, questions you have, or neat stories you want to share with me. You can email me at voicesfromhealthcare at gmail.com. You can also check out the podcast Instagram page at Voices Here I'll post important updates about season launches, episode information, and more. Although this podcast seeks to be informative, information discussed cannot be taken in place of medical advice.